will all fry together when we fry. We'll be French fried potatoes by and by. This is hell. Live from the backseat of a driverless car barreling down the highway towards certain doom while you keep wondering how you ever got into that situation. Uh, maybe it has something to do with uh, you buying a driverless car because, I mean, come on, it doesn't seem like such a good idea to begin with. Uh... This is Limbo. Uh, I am still not Chuck, obviously, uh, nor do I wish I was. Uh, I am still just producer Sebastian, uh, pulling double duty again this week, like all of my fellow behind-the-screens monkeys. Chuck is still recovering from hosting a demon party in his digestive tract, and we still, obviously, hope that he gets better soon so he can return to the studio and we can have regular shows and all new guests again. This is not an insurrection. This is not a revolt. This is simply limbo. Uh, as I said, producing today's show is me, Sebastian. Uh, what's new with me? Well, not a whole lot. Weekends come, the weekends go. We are still in the middle of a global pandemic, and I personally am not willing to mingle with lots of people again just yet. I guess I could just throw caution to the wind and pride myself um, on not living a boring, careful life, but then I'd just like my central nervous system too much to risk facing an often debilitating neurotropic disease like COVID, even with vaccination. Breakthrough infections are still very much a thing, and apparently science has now found that suffering from mental illness, such as depression and anxiety, makes those breakthrough infections more likely. And well, since this is hell, guess what I'm living with? And if you look at the wastewater sampling data, which at this point, as far as I understand this, is the most reliable indicator of COVID community transmission, you'll see that it's trending upwards. So keep your masks on when indoors, in public, regardless of what the media and people in power are telling you. I know I will. While I'm not leaving the house, I am still working on getting our YouTube page back, uh, back into, well, up into better shape, actually. Uh, while, we're getting, while we're getting a bit better in having actual content on there, what we lack are subscribers and viewers. So, if you want to be ahead of the curve, since there will be more interesting and even all new stuff coming to the channel in the future, Go to youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996, thisishellradio in uh, letters in 1996 and numbers, for our channel, and subscribe. We are also in the process of setting up a Discord server, as I said last week, where we can take your answers to the uh, week's question from hell, have you suggest guests to us, and just hang out and talk to fellow fans of this here radio live streaming and maybe in the future... YouTube streaming show. 
Uh, and speaking of the question from hell and foregoing the shtick I ran into the ground as fast as possible last week, what is this week's question from hell? Why, dear listeners, it is, what are you trying to ban from school? What are you trying to ban from school? You can send us your answer to this week's question from hell via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM it to us at Twitter at thisishellradio. Or email it to Chuck, along with your wishes for him to get better, to chuck at thisishell.com. Or you can also just mail it to us producers, alex at thisishell.com. Or yours truly at seb at thisishell.com. That was a lot of ads. We must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, following an all-new Moment of Truth by Jeff Dorcham. The best answer to this, uh, the best answer to the question from hell, as usual, wins its author instant and eternal happiness, and a head full of the most luscious hair. I don't even know how you pronounce that. Luscious, luscious. I should use words that I know how to pronounce when I write these scripts. Anyway. And uh, this head full of the most voluminous hair, let's go with that, uh, will be powered by whatever piece of This Is Hell merch the winner of uh, the Question From Hell contest wants. The t-shirt, the tote bag, the truck ahead, the coffee mug, the loaded flash drive containing the This Is Hell archive of interviews, the face mask, or the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now if you go to thisishell.com and click on support. There you can contribute to completely listener-funded This Is Hell. It is you, after all, the listener, who makes this year's show possible. So thanks to you for all of your support. I will have some of your answers to this week's question from Hell following the upcoming interviews. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your life, in the car, on the bus, while you're hiding from your children on the basement toilet, to have just one moment of peace and quiet during the day. This is hell. Having grown up in West Germany, a distinction that is still important even though the country has been united for over 30 years, I have brought along with me to the US a number of deeply ingrained political convictions that at times make me clash pretty harshly with American political realities. One of the ways that I understand myself is that as a descendant of the people who brought the Nazis to power and in whatever way benefited from their brutal, terrible regime, I have a unique historical responsibility to oppose forces like those my grandparents' generation championed in whatever way I can. And then over here I am faced with a society that never much tried to reckon with, it, with its own past misdeeds, to say nothing about the misdeeds still happening in the present. Challenging past misdeeds of the American nation goes against religiously defended notions of national belonging. There is a reason sociologist Robert Bella coined the term American civil religion when talking about this odd mixture of sacred secular veneration most, American, uh, most Americans approach their countries, signs, symbols, institutions, and leaders with. But did these things make American society especially vulnerable to eventually descending into at least fascist-adjacent realms of sociopolitics? Eh, yeah, maybe. 
This kind of national belonging to the quote-unquote greatest nation in the history of mankind certainly promises a certain sense of elevation for those who believe in it. And by inversion, anything that challenges the sentiment feels like treason, analogous to a religiously felt heresy. But the heist brought on by national belonging are only one aspect of the fascistic tendencies our times suffer from. Nazis, as in Nazis, as in people with swastika tattoos waving banners that promise to murder people of dark complexion and quote-unquote aberrant sexual orientations, have been marching in the streets of the United States. And now we have a growing number of right-wing polit politicians openly embracing ever more fascist rhetoric without much opposition. But how did we get here? How did America become a place that is so implicitly and explicitly flirting with fascism? There is an argument that this has always been the case to some degree, which is of course a contradiction after all. America is supposed to be the land of the free, not the home of the goose-stepping. And yet, as a German who has grown up with a healthy suspicion of anything nationalistic, with a large disdain for militarism, looking around the supporting our troops, respecting the flag countryside here, I can't help but wonder. But then, I'm also a historian and a North Americanist, and I am very much aware that violent white supremacy has been a part of this nation for a very, very long time. Fascism, however, couldn't rise and persist if it didn't offer the people it lures, it attracts, something they couldn't get elsewhere. That has been the case historically, both in places like my home country and in places like the United States. Like the eternal and largely unspoken promise inherent in much of American society that even the lowliest white person will always be an innately more worthy human being than the most exalted black person. I mean, is it any wonder that Hitler built his race laws on the ones found in the American South? In general, it seems like few people are willing to fully engage with the harsh reality of just how damn seductive a lot of these ideas really are. How good they make people feel. Especially in tough times like the ones that we have right now. Nationalism, racism, sexism, ableism. Engaging in, engaging in those is essentially like psychological crack. Elevating oneself over others based on nothing but perceived biological hierarchies, that's free serotonin. You don't have to have done anything good with your life, you can have been yourself exploited to the bone by a system that doesn't give a single hoot about you, but at least you're still better than that fill-in-the-blank minority over there. At least God is on your side. That is ultimately what we who oppose these sentiments have to counter. That is ultimately what the other side is selling. Instant and effortless gratification. And what is our side selling? And this is where this is where the equation of um, the mealy-mouthed moderate liberals as the extreme left really becomes dangerous because they are neoliberals and what they're selling not, not just directly enables fascist ideologies even beyond failing to stand up to those spreading them. But the real danger, the thing that brought us to this present moment in my personal estimation, is that as an ideology, neoliberalism simply fails to offer a counter-vision. 
which in some sense is the whole point. There is no vision in neoliberalism. That is by design. But the fascists promised, uh, basically, the fascists, the fascist promise is basically, things are bad, but we will make them better for you, white, able-bodied, heterosexual, all-American male person. And while we're at it, it's those people's fault that you, white, able-bodied, heterosexual, all-American male, it's those people's fault that you are not having the best time of your life right now. We will allow you to enact cruel violence upon them, and we will help you with that. And in contrast, the neoliberal promises, things are bad, but just be glad that they're not worse. Hey, you have a smartphone now, isn't that nice? Big TVs are affordable for everyone, why are you complaining? And then the neoliberals essentially go on and engage in the same kind and only slightly different intensity of civil religion that the right-wing crackpots do. And this, I believe, is ultimately the reason we had four years of Trump, and this is ultimately the reason that we'll have four more years down the line because, after all, this is hell. Because moderate centrism doesn't offer a vision of a better future, it just offers a mediocre at best present stretch to infinity. We can't do any better than this, sorry. And to go with this theme for today's interviews, I have selected two shorter interviews to play. The first is from March 2015, and in an interview with American Emigrant. Emigrant, so I'm trying to avoid the word ex expat because... You know, when, they're, when people are white, they're expats. When they're not white, they're immigrants. So American immigrant Ed Sutton, who lives in Switzerland, talking on the fascist elements contained in neoliberalism itself. And the second interview will be an interview Chuck conducted with writer and activist Natasha Leonard in 2017 on what Antifa actually is, how they operate, and how anti-fascist action needs to be more than bromides about free speech issues. Um, yeah, I... I do think those two complement each other somewhat. The first kind of like identifies a problem, the second one sort of like goes into um, what can be done about it or what should be done about it. Uh, and since I'm still doing this all by myself, this whole switching around things is <laughs> always kind of a pain. Anyway, da -da -da -da. now we turn off music and now we turn on the interview um enjoy why are you so afraid to use the f word go ahead say it i'll say it F, -f, -f fascist here to tell us why we should feel free to use the f word far more than we do our newest irregular correspondent doing their pilot performance originally from minneapolis minnesota ed sutton now lives near zurich switzerland good morning good evening in zurich ed Good morning to you in Chicago, Chuck. How are you? Good. It's great to meet you, Ed. Let us do a radio handshake. Handshake? I'm doing it actually physically right now. I, I was too. That's how stupid I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, St Ed is a musical instrument builder by trade. He cuts his teeth in independent. He cut his teeth in independent journalism as a member of the Occupy Parade Plots, that is Zurich, and Occupy WEF, that's World Economic Forum, Davos Media Working Groups. He writes about radical urban and social movements at 
AntidoteZine.com. That's AntidoteZine.com. And tweets at Ed Sudden. That's E-D-S-U-D-D as in dog, E-N-E. Ed Sudden. Uh, but there are two more th- important things about you, Ed, that I want to clear up. You performed with Mukapaza on New Year's Eve over at, uh, where were you guys performing again? That was the Double Door. Over the Double Door. You were a, a, a substitute musician. Uh, what yeah. instrument do you play, and how did you hook up with Mukapaza? Uh, I've got a couple of friends in the band. Um, I'm a trumpet player. Um, and uh, one of the guys I went to conservatory with in Wisconsin uh, has been playing in Mukapatsa for a couple of years. And uh, he had invited me to the show already because I was already going to be in Chicago visiting friends. Um, and when I landed in Minneapolis for my Christmas visit, he called me up and said, you know what, six of the eight trumpet players we have bailed for better paying gigs. So do you think you can come and help us out? So I was able to go to one rehearsal and kind of fake my way through an hour and a half set. It was fun. Is it difficult? Is it a hard thing to do, all the marching band stuff, all the choreography? Is that difficult? Uh, no, I could fake it till I make it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they have really technically challenging pieces. I mean, that's one of the things I love about that band is their arrangements are just, I mean, just fantastic. I mean, I don't really know how to describe them. You've heard them. Um, but, like, so, so, so learning the tunes was certainly not a walk in the park. But uh, what Nick told me is, if I screw up, it's in the Mukapatsa context. It's funny, so I could <laughs> kind of get away with anything. Yeah, so <laughs> it was great, you know, it was, it was a perfect uh, performance atmosphere. And so, what's with you and playing baseball or softball or thirteen inch or stickball in Switzerland? What the hell are you playing <laughs> over there? It is real straight up baseball. Although it's by the, uh, the, the 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 German Bundesliga rules rather than like the MLB rules, but it is straight up baseball, fast pitch. What's the difference between Bundesliga and MLB rules? Oh, there's probably a couple of technicalities involving how much time the pitcher gets to take on the mound between pitches and things like that to keep the game moving. But basically, it's the same thing. So it's a more efficient Germanized version of the game. <laughs> Precisely. Okay, so let's get to your uh, writing at Antidote, uh, antidotezine.com last week in defense of the F word. There are elements of neoliberalism that we uh, consider fascistic. Let's start calling them by their name. Uh, you write about how in recent years there has been a discussion emerging, emerging about the rise of neo-fascism worldwide with the example of Europe, where it has taken classical readily identifiable, highly visible forms being uh, most frequently noted. References to a 20th, 21st century Weimar were being made even in mainstream Western media at least as early as 2012 as Golden Dawn's political prominence was surging and the economic suffering in Greece appeared to explain it. Now, we started here on This Is Hell. We started talking about this way back in 1999 or 2000 when we talked to Martin Lee about his book, The Beast Reawakens, Fascism's Resurgence from Hitler's Spy Masters to Today's Neo-Nazi Groups and Right-Wing Extremists. Having lived both in U.S. and in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, that's you having lived there. What's the difference between Nazism in the U.S. or in the, in, in uh, Europe and in the U.S.? Uh, because I always thought that Nazism uh, would be to Europe as communism is to the U.S. Is it that same kind of thing? The way that Nazism is perceived in Europe is the way that we perceive communism. That if somebody is labeled communist, they're immediately an enemy of the state, and that it's something that should not ever be discussed is it is it like that or is it different uh you know it is like that that hadn't really occurred to me but that's such a a, a pretty good parallel um i mean 
for a while, and I'm not sure if this is still current. I think it is in Germany, for example. Uh, you probably know, um, you know, the Hitler salute is against the law. <laughs> I'm not sure what the penalties are for it, but you know, all, all explicitly fascist and uh, national socialist Nazi parties are uh, outlawed. Um, but that doesn't stop people from doing a lot of those sorts of things and expressing a lot of those sorts of uh, ideologies. They just uh, have kind of gone underground, so to speak. They couch it in different language, um, which kind of gets them around the uh, the social and political taboos. But then it also uh, makes it much harder for people who want to accuse them of that behavior. Um, I, I, I guess another parallel to the United States would be just kind of uh, – the discussion that uh, we're having about race and that you were just having with Bruce Dixon about Ferguson and all these kinds of things where where you can't accuse anybody of being a racist anymore. Um, it's almost worse than saying the N-word in a way. It's kind of this reverse censorship. Um, and, and people have uh, figured out how to uh, get around being accused of of racism, and they are shocked, just completely shocked when they get accused of it. Um, and uh, they, because they've gone through a lot of trouble to cover it up with dog whistle language and everything. Um, and when it comes to accus accusations of fascism in Europe and certainly in the United States, I mean, the problem is compounded 100 fold. Um, and we make, we find ourselves making claims about what people probably say in private, um, just because the public language is so. Uh, streamlined and manipulated. And so, actually, I mean, in the age of social media now, where nothing is private anymore, you know, we're, we're, people are much more careful, like we've been talking about, but um, they're also getting caught out more often. Um, I mean, the Justice Department's report on the Ferguson Police Department that you were just discussing is a really good example. Okay, so there's these cops that have been saying racist things and doing racist things and being violent. Uh, and and uh, we we find out about it now, um, and that's great. But uh, what it means is that in many cases, when we're making accusations of racism or accusations of fascism, we're not just slinging insubstantial insinuations about what some awful grinning gargoyles with public platforms probably say in trusted company. No, we're finding about this, finding out about this stuff. Um, and I mean, I can talk about people I know. <laughs> and, and you know people like this too and everybody right. does and i guess i'm just trying to lay it out on the table a little bit be a little bit uh provocative but i mean family members co-workers and even friends who you never called fascists um make casually racist and misanthropic statements or um you know in the case of switzerland i have friends on the baseball team for example um who consider themselves liberal and are by you know uh all definitions of the word, I suppose, um, who still uh, would make arguments against uh, open borders and freedom of movement on economic grounds, for example. Um, sort of the, the, the tired, familiar arguments that we're all really used to hearing now when it comes to, you know, we don't want these brown people to come and take our jobs. But that's obviously not the way they're going to put it. Um, it's just we, we, we want our economy to, to be strong and we want Swiss people to be benefiting from that economy above all. Um, and, you know, when somebody is making those sorts of arguments to me, I'm not just going to scream fascist in their face and, like, put their address online so that 
the local anti-law can go and like burn their car or something. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I think it's important to, I, I think, notice those calling cards, even in people who are otherwise well-meaning. And uh, if it provokes a discussion to actually use the word fascism, the way I recommend in the piece. You know, I thought that the penalty for giving a Hitler salute in Germany was that Vladimir Putin gave you a TV show in Russia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually, I kind of want to get to Putin in a second uh, because I felt like my piece was um, throwing the F-bomb only at the United States. And uh, I didn't want to be misinterpreted the way uh, I feel... Well, you know, the one thing I wanted you, I wanted you to make a, a point about, Ed, because you make a point about it in your writing, yeah. is people always equate fascism with Nazism. Why do you? Why is it so important to make sure that people understand these are two different things? Oh, that's a really, really important point, really a good question. Um, mainly because National Socialism, it's in the name of it, Nazism, is an anti-capitalist ideology. And that's what makes it so dangerous in a way. One of the pieces that I cite in uh, in my F-word piece, for example, is by a friend and comrade of mine uh, whose name I shouldn't use and whose pseudonym I used in the piece when I cited him, named Walker, um, who points out <laughs> how, dangerous it is, how dangerous it is, especially in our current climate. Um, and he makes a bunch of comparisons to the 1930s when it comes to um, fascism and communism being sort of opposite poles and both being sort of equal and opposite responses to liberalism and how currently when we're all talking about neoliberal, well, we're not all talking about it, obviously, but this is hell is anyway, um, then it's neo-fascism. And I guess <laughs> I'd love to say that there's a ideology that we could call neo-communism, but I, I, I guess there isn't, um, <laughs> which gives the neo-fascists a pretty good chance, frankly. Um, uh, but he points out that uh, essentially you know, neo-fascism is uh, is a response um, to neoliberalism. It's it's uh, in opposition to neoliberalism, and that makes certain sneaky rhetorics within neo-fascism really, really tempting, even for political progressives. Um, and what Walker talks about, for example, is the uh, sort of the gravitational pull towards economic nationalism that we're seeing happening. And all, all over the place. I mean, the United States is obviously a great example, but, you know, with uh, more and more uh, partners in crime like Japan and Turkey and Brazil, where uh, we're seeing a lot more kind of movements towards this sort of, um, I guess, isolationism and, and, and looking out for your own country and the goods of the, and the good of uh, the citizens of your own country, economically speaking, and using um, economic arguments or nationalistic arguments um, to compel people to behave in certain ways within the economy, I guess. And Walker can, you know, explain it much better than I can. And I invite everybody to, you know, click on the link within my piece and read what he wrote because it's just fantastic. Um, but that's the main thing. And because uh, uh, as far as fascism con is concerned, compared to national socialism, um, part of the problem is that it's really hard to define, but one of the definitions um, that uh, I think is relevant to a recent conversation that you just had with Rick Perlstein where he compared Rahm Emanuel to Mussolini <laughs> is the corporatism def definition, right? So instead of being anti-capitalist, it's actually like super capitalist, right? And so these are kind of 
two sides of the same coin. They're different ideologies coming from different directions, but it's the effects and the results that I'm interested in. I'm interested in people who essentially... Now, this is really tough because uh, I, I got one of the responses that I was really, really looking for from this piece from actually a friend of mine who plays on the baseball team and, you know, doesn't share a lot of my beliefs about things, asking me, like, well, look, you just uh, threw the F word around for a while, um, but you never defined it yourself. Like, what are you talking about? Because the... he is like he described himself as a, a just an ignorant bourgeois type. Um, doesn't have a definition for fascism either. Um, and my answer to him was basically, well, look, I mean, I didn't define it sort of on purpose. And it makes me look like a better chess player than I actually am. But really, that, like his response was exactly the one I wanted. I wanted to start this conversation. I wanted people to at least start, you know, asking themselves these questions, like, what does it mean? And the way I put it is basically, look, it's it has something to do with... Um, an, 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 an implicit supremacy of some sort. It can be either national or ethnic or even gender. Um, and then along with that um, implicit, not only inferiority, but even like unhumanness of all others that don't belong to that group that allows you obviously to abuse them because that's the third part is a capacity for violence. Um, and of course, all three of those things together lead to a certain kind of anti-democratic impulse, because um, clearly if you're trying to exclude people and or destroy them, um, you're not going to be interested in their voices <laughs> in any kind of democratic forum. Um, but one of the other points I made to him at that time was um, that just being anti-democratic in itself doesn't necessarily mean it's fascistic. Because um, we put up with so much anti or undemocratic things in our day-to-day -day lives. Most of our workplaces aren't democratic. Our schools aren't democratic. Um, and we have a lot of tolerance for, you know, I guess in certain ways, taking orders and doing as we're told. Um, and leaving other things up to other people because we want other people to take care of stuff for us. And uh, that's fine. Um, and it doesn't mean that, like... There's going to be the specter of fascism emerging out of that. Um, but it's when those other three components are present. But then I would say, look, this is starting to get pretty fascistic, and we need to take a step back and um, stop limiting ourselves to the definition of fascism to just goose-stepping dudes with red armbands in Berlin. Right, and uh, or to be somebody who is in a KKK outfit. You don't have to be wearing exactly. uh, brown shirts. You don't have to have a swastika on your armband. You don't have to be wearing a KKK outfit to be somebody who is acting in a fascistic way within your definition of fascism. And they can all be doing it under the guise of markets. They could all be doing it under the guise of patriotism. It could all seem very objective. It could, you know, without any kind of emotion and maybe not even overtly racist. But then you point out the racism, the increase in racism, the increase in prejudice, the increase in violent crimes against Muslims here in the United States, Do is it necessary for there to be a punished minority, a, uh, a scapegoat minority, in order for a country to be acting uh, in a fascistic way? Is that what we need to see in order for us to accurately, in your opinion, uh, call the actions or the attitudes or the culture here in the United States acting in a fascistic way? Uh, yeah, 
<laughs> basically yes um and uh, the more we look for that kind of thing the more we're going to find it in a lot of kind of uh, places that maybe we didn't even expect it and that's why some a couple of my more um some provocative proposals for things that we should call fascist was for example men's rights activists you know these are people that uh, consider women inferior they're misogynists and in many cases they're violent that qualifies in my definition so uh you also say that muslims should refer to the treatment that they are getting as fascistic but that's easy for you to say you're not a muslim living in the u.s uh even though you would suggest that to them how far do you think that would really go how do you think that uh fox news because that's the barometer of everything good lord right. uh how do you think that uh fox news would react to a muslim referring to the united states treating them in a, or acting in a fascistic way Oh, very, very badly. Um, and that's why, I mean, <laughs> I pointed out in my piece that they're, they're very unlikely to start doing that, and probably rightly so. Because, I mean, I'm complaining about the accusations that get hurled at me. I'm a white-bearded dude. Uh, I guess in a certain respect, I'm an, you know, uh, a minority because I'm an immigrant here, but... Uh, not really. Come on, give me a break. And 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 even when I use the word fascism, it people stop taking me seriously. So what's going to happen when a brown person or a Muslim starts saying using the word fascism? It's just one more reason for people to ignore them, which they're already doing. Um, and so I mean, that was one of the reasons that I was made a point of of quoting Aisha Siddiqui, um, the editor of I think the New Inquiry. Um, at the end of my piece, uh, she's fantastic. Um, and she was, uh, I don't want to accuse her of dancing around the issue, but the things that she was describing uh, in an interview that I heard her on um, all sounded like just straight up fascism to me, <laughs> but she didn't use the word. And I'm glad she didn't because one of the things that she was um, complaining about and one of the things that I pointed out in my piece is that Muslims uh, and minorities of all kinds of marginalized groups, they get gaslighted. They get called crazy. Um, when they point out just the simple fact that they're that it's scary to live among people who hate you, which seems like a pretty easy thing to point out, but unfortunately, people don't like being accused of hating you. No, no, it's great. Everything is copacetic. You're fine, you know. But she she asked, what what more can we do? Because this is really scary. It's violent. People are getting killed, and. <laughs> In a way, she was struggling to try and get, she was asking herself, what can we do to wake people up? Because she described it as uh, feeling like a precursor to something of the magnitude of the Holocaust, which immediately sounds like an exaggeration. Um, and my attitude is basically like, look, well, if that's our criteria for calling something fascism, that six million Jews die, um, then there's no more fascism anymore and there never will be. Um, and if, if we just define it the way most people do, I think reflexively, um, as being either Hitler or Mussolini, depending on whether you're talking about Nazism or fascism, another distinction most people don't make, um, then yeah, we're all just going to appear wild-eyed every single time we use the word. One last question for you, Ed. This is the pilot. This is the premiere. This is the inaugural report from our newest irregular correspondent. 
He is originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Ed Sutton now lives near Zurich, Switzerland. He is a musical instrument builder by trade. He cut his teeth in the independent as an independent journalist, as a member of the Occupy Parade Plots, that's in Zurich, and Occupy WEF, as in World Economic Forum in Davos. He worked in those media working groups. He writes about radical urban and social justice movements at antidotezine.com. That's antidotezine.com. And tweets at Ed Sudden, E-D as in dog, S-U-D-D, again as in dog, E-N, Ed Sudden. Uh, Ed, you write that the unprecedented success of radical right-wing parties in last year's EU parliamentary elections and the more recent wave of fascistic anti-Islam movements in Europe, not to mention the lethal Islamophobic violence that accompanied this wave, have accelerated the discussion on fascism. Following the the Charlie Hebdo uh, shooting and the uh, march that I thought was about free speech, but apparently was not about free speech, and it was in solidarity with something else because suddenly France started shutting down publications around the country. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right after uh, we had that Charlie Hebdo uh, shooting, uh, we were thinking that there was going to be maybe some major change, and maybe there was, but it was in a very bad direction. But then we had people on the show from Syriza, and we had people on from Podemos, and we had people on from Rojava, and we had people on talking about the challenge that the Islamic State is to the new modern state. We talked about extra statecraft and all these different types of challenges to the new modern state. But when we think about the challenges to power that we are seeing right now, all of these lefty challenges that we've been talking about on the show, like Syriza, like Podemos, like Rojava, uh, are there just as many right-wing fascistic movements happening at the same time? Are we ignoring those that are on the far right? And is that what's happening within around the world right now? Whether it's on the far right or the far left, there are new challenges to power that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, no. Uh, and in a way, I guess that sounds like the opposite of everything else that I'm saying in terms of trying. <laughs> it doesn't sound very alarmist. But I, I would like to be alarmist. And um, I guess the distinction I would make in that case is that, look, this isn't a matter of uh, isolated and, like I put it, like easily identifiable and visible movements um, kind of bubbling up in certain places. Although that is the case in places like Germany, France and England. You know, we've got the Front National and we've got uh, Pegida and we've got UKIP and um you name it and i think there's uh you know as walker points out in the piece i mentioned before there's uh similar things happening in in turkey and japan uh and china for that matter um but a lot of that stuff doesn't have as much to do with i think um external movements coming at the uh existing status quo the existing political order uh the existing social order from outside and trying to change it but rather these are things that are embedded in the existing social order. And to me, that's much, much more scary. Ed, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. Uh, welcome to our staff. It's fantastic to have a new correspondent in Europe and somebody who is in Switzerland, somewhere where we have not had a correspondent in the past. Thank you so much. People can follow Ed by going to Ed Sudden, following him on Twitter at Ed Sudden. That's E-D-S-U-D-D-E-N. Thanks so much, Ed. You bet. Thank you, Chuck. And that was our first interview of the day. And without further ado, uh, we'll just start playing interview number two. Um, yeah, this is interview number two. Um, Chuck interviewing Natasha Leonard. 
on uh, Antifa and the real work of resisting fascism. This is hell. The fight against fascism has been going on for a very, very, very long time here in the U.S. Time and time again, Nazis have risen up, and time and time again, anti-fascists have pushed them back down. Here to help us all better understand Antifa, its strategies, tactics, context, and history, writer and political analyst Natasha Leonard posted the article, Don't Give Fascism an Inch to Defeat White Supremacy. We must confront it directly as part of a debate package written for In These Times September issue. Welcome to This Is Hell, Natasha. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Natasha writes about politics and power for publications such as Esquire, The Nation, Intercept, New York Times. Her most recent writing at The Nation includes Not Rights But Justice, It's Time to Make Nazis Afraid Again. Natasha's book Violence with Brad Evans will be released later this year. And like I said earlier, you can follow Natasha on Twitter at Natasha Leonard. That's L-E-N-N. A-R-D. Natasha, last weekend in San Francisco, International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 10 shut down attempts by a far-right-wing group that had recently been involved in violence with counter-protesters in Portland, Oregon, to have a rally in San Francisco. As Peter Cole wrote in In These Times this week, the ILWU boycotted ships loading material for fascist and racist regimes in Japan in the 1930s, Chile in the 1970s, South Africa in the 1980s. It stood as one of the few organizations organizations to condemn the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. It actively fought racism in its own workplaces, cities, and nations. The ILWU shut down all West Coast ports on May Day of 2008 to protest the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. On Trump's inauguration day, 90% of rank-and-file members in Local 10 refused to report for work. So, Natasha, how new or how different is today's Antifa from, say, what's been going on for decades when it comes to action, again, action taken by groups like the ILWU in their fight against fascism? How new is this? I mean, well, certainly as both formation, ideology and tactics, it's nothing new at all. And, you know, uh, not new compared to the self-organized street gangs fighting against um, Mussolini's fascists or Oswald Mosley's fascists in uh, 1930s England. So we're not even just talking the past few decades. Um, And in terms of how it's new. I think it's new in a current discourse about how we're talking about emboldened fascism and ways to counter it. But certainly Antifa, anti-fascism, is not some new collective and is not some conspiratorial group trying to hand over victories to the right with elaborate displays of violence. Um, it's It's an old and well established set of tactics that anti-fascists have used to directly confront fascist upsurges in the awareness that often conservative, liberal, and government institutions are ill-equipped to face these forces and indeed often are quite happy, uh, especially in the configuration we're seeing now in the White House, to enable them. Um, So this is nothing new, and it's particularly odd, I think, for those of us who do know this history, this 
labor organizing history, this anarchist history, um, and even, you know, the punk scene history in the 80s and 90s, not all that long ago. It is a little odd and baffling to see uh, the major newspapers all around the country talking about Antifa as if it were aliens who landed on space for the first time. Um, so they're out of space for the first time. So this, what's new, I think, is the surprise of these liberal media organizations. That's what I'm finding unusual, not the existence of Antifa. Well, what, what explains that to you? Why do you think the media doesn't understand that historic context when it pretty much is clear and in your face? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's nothing new either. There's a, a kind of grand, um, the cautious Luther King famously called them, uh, history of that sort of uh, liberal centrist and centrist conservative media um, standing against and acting shocked. Honest and uh, direct action tactics. Um, so I don't know why we see this pattern, except uh, as it can best be described by Martin Luther King, it's people who are interested in the defense of order rather than justice. Um, so in the same way we're seeing the presence of Antifa as not a new iteration, we're seeing the presence of centrist liberal fear-mongering um, arise again. It's, it's, a, it's a familiar pattern. Natasha, let me ask you this. What does it say to you then about the state of uh, either liberalism or the Democratic Party when in the way that you were just uh, responding to that past que the last question, uh, they prioritize order over justice? Um, well, it says to me that it's, it's sticking by its um, cautious, moderate laurels, which have never historically actually been on the side of justice. Um, they just post hoc consider themselves to have possibly been the sort of people that would have supported the sort of uh, direct action um, that Martin Luther King would have advocated for. Only when it's um, comfortably in the past. But I think what we're seeing and these sort of responses from uh, opiners from every major newspaper, Nancy Pelosi, and tragically enough, Noam Chomsky, um, is the sort of condemning of direct action that was all too common in the civil rights movement. There was a fantastic um, op-ed from three clergy members, I believe it was yesterday in the New York Times, um, uh, thankfully a counterpoint to some of the awful um, reactionary garbage we're seeing, fear-mongering about Antifa's direct action, pointing out that these sort of opinions that we're seeing from the center and from liberals are exactly the sort of things that look shameful when we see them iterated during the civil rights movement. You write a more recent history of Antifa in both Europe and the United States illustrates the success these tactics can have, particularly when it comes to an expunging violent racist forces from our neighborhoods and defending vulnerable communities, while also creating networks of support that do not rely on structurally racist law enforcement for protection against racists. How often do anti-fascists have successes for which they are not given their past due? When anti-fascists 
uh, do succeed, are they ever hailed in the media as being the results of anti-fascist action? Because the one thing I couldn't help but think about when I was reading this, so I was reading a lot of your articles, I couldn't help but thinking about the way that the union movement doesn't get the uh, credit for the great successes that it has created, like the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour work week, uh, Social Security. So how often, like unions, how often are anti-fascists not given the justice that they are due for the successes that they have had against fascists? Well, I would say consistently. And when those victories do occur, these uh, cautious moderates are all too happy to take credit. Um, But, you know, for example, just recently, we have seen um, some voices, I think, give due credit to the relevance of Antifa. For example, Cornell West thanking Antifa for their um, their defense and their presence in Charlottesville. But no, there's a there's a notable silence um, around how Antifa was a very relevant force in the very dangerous neo-Nazi subcultures that arose in the 80s and 90s, perhaps fairly because they were subcultures. But these are really notable successes of how anti-fascist organizing and anti-fascist local organizing and awareness exposed local communities of Nazi, neo-Nazi skinhead organizing, closed down their punk shows, closed down their organizing spaces, and really made it impossible for these countercultural, subcultural um, neo-fascists to gain ground. And of course, these are sort of histories that aren't going to um, make it onto CNN, MSNBC, let alone Fox News. But they're not unrecorded in Antifa history. For example, Mark Bray's recent book, he's been making the media rounds and doing a good job, really points out that there are a number of clear examples of Antifa success that speak against this paranoiac screed of they're just handing victories to the right by punching Nazis. It's simply unempirical. Miss my button. Uh, so you also write that when neo-Nazi Richard Spencer of, at his uh, National Policy Institute held their annual conference in D.C. last November, anti-fascist activists exposed the events, its attendees, and where its members were dining and attempted to not only protest but to disrupt and shut down the conference, as well as Spencer's dinner plan succeeding at least in dousing the white nationalists in a foul-smelling liquid. <laughs> News and monitoring sites like NYC Antifa, Anti-Fascist News, and It's Going Down have been reporting on the uh, NPI, that's uh, uh, Richard Spencer's organization, exposing their members and their conferences since before Trump's candidacy. So how much can we credit Antifa activists for getting the media to recognize the far-right leanings of many who support the Trump administration? How much of the goal of Antifa is an informational and awareness goal? Oh, a huge amount. So obviously, um, media dependent as it is on the spectacle, um, over-exaggerates the role that the street fight plays in Antifa organizing. It is a relevant and historic part of it that I wouldn't say is not representative, but it's not representative of, of what the vast majority of time and energy is dedicated to, which is, um, uh, as you say, exposure, finding out who these people are, who they are organizing with, which symbolism and dog whistles and 
veiled signals they're using on Twitter, which avatars they're using, exposing the language and the discourse by which these people are organizing and exposing the individuals. And it actually, but it aligns in exactly the same way as a strategy, as a a street confrontation does tactically, which is saying there are consequences if you turn up and organize as a neo-Nazi, neo-fascist extremist, a white nationalist, a racist. The consequences are we will expose you. People who are organizing against you will make it clear that you won't be able to get away with this in terms of hiding behind uh, a flag and then slipping away or hiding behind a Pepe the Frog avatar. Um, if you turn up to a white man, we will happily reveal your name and inform your employer. Um, and it's the same thing as saying we will confront you in the street. It's there are consequences. We're not asking the state, we're not asking law enforcement institutions to curtail your rights, reconfigure rights. We're not asking for state interlocution in this, actually. We're saying we advocate local organizing and community organizing for there to be consequences for hate and consequences for upsurges of white nationalist or organizers. And I think it's really interesting that you have figures like the Daily News's Sean King, who made it his business after Charlottesville to publicize the pictures of the five white supremacists that uh, beat a young black man with metal poles and were not arrested on the spot, unsurprisingly. Um, but he made it his business to reveal them, put their faces all over Twitter and find their names. And that is classic Antifa work. Um, which you've just got a daily news columnist committing himself to doing. Um, and that's a lot of the Antifa work that people aren't giving credit to. And I think it has been important in revealing these Venn diagrammatic circles that definitely go all the way to the White House, um, talking about how these groups are organizing together and being and becoming together. And this goes from Spencer's MPI to more traditional neo-Nazis to the hipster thug proud boys we are speaking with writer and political analyst natasha leonard who posted the article don't give fascism an inch to defeat white supremacy we must confront it directly it's part of, deba of a debate in in these times september issue natasha in your article at in these times you write figures like far-right leader richard spencer are the tip of a white supremacist iceberg that has been the norm since long before trump's ascendance what do we miss in our understanding of the far right when we not only see this as something new, but opponents of President Trump believe that if we get rid of Trump, you'll get rid of the rising far right, that the far right is a historical anomaly and it will rise under Trump and go away after he's gone? What do we miss in our understanding of the right when we embody it in Trump? Well, I think we miss not just an understanding of the right, an understanding of what undergirds um, the very conception of America um, and the very history of this country. This was a, uh, it's obviously a former slave colony and also relevantly undergirded by white supremacy that has not ended. Um, and if we comfortably 
um, contain it within the idea of one persona or even a few extremist groups, uh, we fail to address and also recognize the struggle that was certainly very present long before Trump arrived on the scene, um, the prison industrial complex, uh, standard issue police brutality and impunity. Um, Black Lives Matter did not arise as it necessarily had to under Donald Trump. Um, So the idea that we're just addressing uh, racism and that without these uh, extremists, and if we sever these extremists, will be at some post-racial utopia, um, grandly disregards the struggle for racial justice that's been going on without end um, and without pause. Um, so I think that would be particularly dangerous um, and uh, would, would, would end up leading us to the very same problems that uh, brought a pr- Trump presidency about, the very conditions of possibility for it. Um, so I think that would be incredibly dangerous and as an approach um and it would fall into the sort of logic that um even uh, Bertolt Brecht pointed out in 1933 um that the sort of anti-fascist who's not willing to confront the capitalism from which that fascism was birthed is like a meat eater who doesn't want to watch the butcher handling the meat um so it would be incredibly foolish and a rejection of structural problems um, to place all our um, anti-fascism as a fight against Donald Trump or even just a fight against uh, Richard Spencer and his neo-Nazi brigades. You write that the alt-right is a fumbling, fractured mess, but support for racist ideology is not dwindling by virtue of this. Quite the opposite. If they are a fumbling fractured mess, then why worry about the far right? Or is it that state of being a fumbling and fractured mess that makes them more dangerous? Well, I think the thing is, um, because white supremacy is um, so much of a norm, it doesn't really matter if these groups that keep having infights and fracturing and decrying each other on their own Um, blogs and websites and Twitter feeds, it doesn't really matter if these iterations fall out. There's clearly an emboldened white nationalism, an emboldened white supremacy um, that allows for many, many groups to re-find each other, reconnect. um, And it, it plays into exactly what I was saying before. If we focus all our attention on just the named figures, be it Steve Bannon, be it Sebastian Gorka, be it Richard Spencer, be it Gavin McInnes, and think if these guys argue each other into oblivion, then we're safe, then we're not understanding that this is an emboldened ideology that is not going to go away without struggle, without confrontation. You write, as with fascisms, not all anti-fascisms are the same, but the essential features that anti-fascism does not tolerate fascism. It would, it, it would give it no platform for debate. The history of anti-fascism in 20th century Europe is largely one of fighting squads like the International Militant Brigades fighting Franco in Spain, the Red Front Fighters League in Germany who were fighting Nazis since the party's formation in the 1920s, the print workers who fought ultranationalists in Austria, and the 43 group in England fighting Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. In every iteration, these mobilizations entailed 
uh, physical combat, the failure of early 20th century fighters to keep fascist regimes at bay speaks mostly uh, speaks more to the paucity of numbers than the problem of their direct confrontational tactics. So you don't see the tactics as failing, but failure due to a lack of participation. And if that's the case, isn't lack of participation, in a sense, a failed strategy? Doesn't that reflect a failed strategy? But I think it's, a, you know, it. it it's a problematic uh, double-edged sword. So you might say, well, if your ta- if Antifa tactics were less confrontational, then it could draw a broader base. Um, but I don't actually think that's an, an unovercomable issue so long as people are willing to embrace a diversity of tactics. No Antifa uh, iterations, organizations, upsurges are asking everyone to be willing to throw a punch. The ask is that centrists and liberals who themselves suggest, and even conservatives who, them, who themselves allege to decry these far-right upsurges, these neo-Nazis, these white nationalists, the ask is that they don't throw the anti-fascists under the bus. What we're seeing in the days and weeks since Charlottesville is an immense amount of energy from the center um, from the centrist media into decrying Antifa. Um, And largely a lot of this paranoia and this fear mongering cites little more than low level property damage. Um, Spencer Sunshine, who is a a long term researcher and uh, writer commentator on uh, anti-fascism and fascism, uh, both in the U S and Western Europe, Um, noted that if you take into account the last two decades in the U.S. of um, fatalities related to alleged left extremism and far-right extremism, you're talking a ratio of his his statistic was 450 to 1. So that really speaks to the dangerous and ill-based false equivalency that Trump happily embraced, but the groundwork was laid by centrists conjuring specters and terms like the alt-left um, with really little to speak of than some property damage at Berkeley and a few punches thrown. Um, in the meantime, you're seeing murderous action from the far right and murderous intent from white supremacists whose very ideology is based on violent desire for genocidal action. Um, So the idea of wanting to erase those people being um, an equivalent, equally worthy of paranoiac screeds and opinion pages, to me is, is baffling and very discomforting. There's a couple of ways in which this debate is being framed that you think are distracting and misleading, and it leads to a kind of a collapse of the discussion. You write it in these times that framing this issue in terms of free speech is a fallacy that cedes too much power to the state and other top-down institutions. How does a free speech framing cede too much power to the uh, state and other top-down institutions? How much does free speech framing of this debate distract us from what you see as what should be discussed in this debate? Well, anytime you start to talk about um, rights, constitutional rights, human rights, it's a a state discourse. Uh, The state gives or denies 
the rights that we feel we should be accorded. Um, These are always top-down discussions uh, necessary to defend and discuss. But um, the, the fact of rights being accorded does not mean justice is established. And I think um, it seeds too much to the right in that um, the suggestion that anti-fascists are asking state institutions to remove speech rights is just a fallacy because it's not particularly in the anarchist tradition to ask the state to take up greater powers, even against perceived enemies of ours. So I think it's a a fallacy that this is the anti-fascist line, um, because, and when that fallacy is upheld, of course, it undermines the idea of an anti-fascism, because I agree, it would indeed be a potentially slippery slope if we start asking state institutions to have more and more control over who uh, can or can't speak. For example, um, there's no right to punching Richard Spencer, but I certainly support that. So we have a very limited discourse if we only want to discuss what we may or may not have a right to do. And I think we have to go beyond that if we're talking about actually addressing these forces head on. Furthermore, um, I'm in Europe right now, actually, um, and I was, uh, in, I've was i been in Berlin and a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a neo-Nazi rally, really traditional neo-Nazis, not just Pegida, these neo-fascists, traditional neo-Nazis uh, uh, gathering to mark the anniversary of Rudolf Hess's death. So very, very troubling stuff. And there are stronger hate speech statutes in Germany. They can't have a swastika. They, uh, they can't have bags when these neo-Nazis gather. Um, certain symbolism is not allowed. You're not allowed to Zeke Heil. But nonetheless, they gathered. Nonetheless, they were there, and they were about a thousand strong in Berlin in this day and age. So, it, which also speaks to the slight um, uselessness of demanding reconfiguration of hate speech statutes. Maybe it's a good idea, but it really won't get us to the erasure of neo-Nazis and their ability to organize. So, I just think it's a it's a bad focus and one that liberals are very keen on because it makes anti-fascists and fascists aligned in their uh, discrediting of institutional forces. Um, But uh, no, I have absolutely no interest in appealing to Donald Trump's White House to change hate speech statutes, A, because uh, authority isn't in the habit of undermining undermining itself. Um, And I think Donald Trump is well aware that he is deeply enabled and supported by white supremacists and white supremacy. Um, And I also think if you look at the European models, it's not been a particularly helpful way of combating extremist rights. So in Hungary, they have particularly strong hate speech statutes and the extremist right is hardly having trouble organizing there. Um, But what you have seen um, when you talk about something like the ability to deny the Holocaust, which is illegal in Hungary, that hasn't stopped Holocaust deniers. But what has stopped them gathering is when anti-fascists block their talks and make it impossible for attendees to get in and make the speakers and the venues have to weigh up whether it's worth it. That's why famous Holocaust denier David Irving does not plan talks anymore throughout the United States. It's not because of hate speech statutes. It's because of an awareness that he will be met en masse with anti-fascist action.
Why isn't the best strategy to get as many left-wing speakers, those who effectively argue against neo-Nazism, fascism, and the far right on campus, convincing the student body on college campuses that the left has the superior message? Why not seed space the far right and win with arguments? Because I don't think this is based on rationale. And I don't think that the reason (laughs) that the far right are gathering is because they have and, and gaining ground and traction is because they have compelling arguments. It's a sentiment and it's a ressentiment um, that I don't think is um, the sort of thing that you argue someone out of. It's a different sort of experiential experience. And by the same token, I don't think it's a point. There is no point at which I think, oh, so you're a racist and I'm an anti-racist, but please tell me about your racism. Um, these are not actually, this is also part of this free speech fallacy. These rallies, these speeches, even someone like Milo, he's not putting forward an argument. He's gathering and playing on ressentiment. So the idea that that could be challenged by plight debate doesn't understand what's fueling it. This is not actually a problem of ideas. Um, Because if it were, then the contradictions and the idiocy of this sort of racism, this sort of extremism, would, (laughs) a bit like the internal contradictions of capitalism, uh, collapse on itself. But like the internal contradictions of capitalism, it actually takes struggle to bring it to a close and to overturn it. That's the same, I think, with this racist ideology. Its own idiocy does not empirically, as we've seen historically, argue itself into oblivion, and nor does a plight debate with that sort of ressentiment and that sort of hate um, end in a uh, positive win for the left, for justice. Um, And I wouldn't give these sort of ideas credit as counterpoints. They're not counterpoints. You know, I could talk to you about this for another 35 minutes, <laughs> but unfortunately, I only have one, la- one question left for you. We've been speaking with writer and political analyst Natasha Leonard, who posted, don't give fascism an inch to defeat white supremacy. We must confront directly as part of a debate package written for In These Times, September issue. Natasha, as we do for all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. This is going to be in many of those categories because I'm going to try to cobble together a couple of questions here to make them into one. Because one of the things I couldn't help but think about while I was reading your work is how uh, climate change denialists became legitimized by putting them, giving them the same uh, kind of equivocation as actual climate scientists who were telling people that climate change was actually happening. And all I could think of was fascists being allowed to have that same seat within the media. And so I started thinking of the frustration that people of the left have had with that kind of thing. But it, it goes beyond that. Affirmative action, Brown v. Board of Education, they didn't work. Corporate consolidation has silenced anything but rich, uh, rich right-wing perspectives. How much has any frustration with this system, whether it's the media or the government, how much does the anti, Antifa movement reflect a f- uh, foundational frustration with a broken system that no longer works for the left? Um, you know, I think it 
it definitely represents frustrated people, but frustrated doesn't go far enough. It's it's rage, and I think it's righteous rage. Um, so if frustration becomes uh, ennui and acceptance, well, that's one thing, but uh, Antifa doesn't um, carry the same valence of frustration for me because it is uh, a mode of getting together, organizing, networking, finding each other, and actually using rain so it's uh if we talk about frustrations having little use you know this has got it's a tactical approach that actually has tactical efficacy um so which is not a particularly frustrating thought to me i know i I was when i was uh even writing that question I was thinking that frustration wasn't quite the word. It just seems like so many people are cut off from actually having any kind of effective change on the system because it is so controlled by uh, the powers that be, by the 1% right now, that I could see how you, uh, you know, revolution, I could be wrong, but revolution seems to happen when nothing else seems to be working to get change done. Um, Yeah, and I mean, certainly Antifa is part of a, uh, a broader revolutionary idea, which is re- also related to prison abolition um, and uh, true liberatory justice. So I definitely think, um, yeah, it would be pretty frustrating if the only thing we can do is uh, make Nazi rallies shut down, <laughs> which we can do. Um, but yeah, uh, anti-fart action alone won't bring us the change we need but it never pretends to do that it's always part of a broader struggle and i think if it's seen that way it's understood much better as one tactic in a broader struggle um which seems a little uh pyrrhic right now but natasha i really appreciate you being on the show this week i really appreciate being able to have this conversation about the context and history of the antifa movement i think it was desperately needed thank you so much for being on the air with us today thanks so much You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. And with that, we are back in 2022. Until Chuck's fully recovered return, we will continue playing these staff picks and create half new episodes around this older material. We will also have all new Rotten History, all new questions from hell, and new moments of truth. If you wish to show your appreciation for our work here, go to our site, thisishell.com, and click on support, where you can buy our merch or subscribe to our Patreon, which you can also find at patreon.com slash thisishell, all of which keeps this year completely listener-supported boat afloat. As Chuck likes to say, without you, we got nothing. We pledge to you on our overmarched souls that there will be all new interviews, all new monologues, and an all new old Chuck. So thanks to you all for all of your support. Now, let me see if we have new answers for this week's question from hell. A reminder for the dear listening audience, this week's question from hell was... What are you trying to ban from schools? What are you trying to ban from schools? Dan K on Facebook says, Students. Yeah, that's a good idea. 
That's where half of the trouble with schools comes from. Krimsky Cracker says, The Cultural Revolution sets a very bad example. Aaron D says, Dumb teachers. Uh, Jeffrey D says, Knowledge. Uh, I mean, I have the impression that the American school system is way ahead of that there, Jeffrey. Having been a college instructor for five years, six years, seven years, what is time? Um, and having seen the results of American high school education in action. <sighs> yeah, it's not great. Um, Ray O says, Republicans. Sarah M says, any textbooks that are approved in Florida or Texas? Eh, well, that's, that seems like a good idea. Ian S. says, classrooms. I mean, in the, Ian, I have to say, in the age of COVID-19, classrooms are a bad idea. Ed F. says, ignorance. Um, Ronald A. says, overregulation that stifles creativity and exploration. Yeah, I, I guess we can um, add... Uh, I can. I guess we can add like teaching for test, for test results for these things on there. I, I feel like I should make an episode on that, on how that ruins everything. Uh, Pete V says fun. Hmm. Is fun a good teacher? I don't know. I mean, my countrymen would probably disagree, as, as would the Puritans in this country. David I says calisthenics. So basically, banning gym class. You know that Germans are the reason that you have gym class? Yeah, blame us for that. Uh, Wojciech R says, recess. Yeah, nothing good happens at recess. I never know does it. Um, and finally... And finally, John T says, vampires who glisten in the daylight. Yeah, well, what do these guys have to do in school anyway? I mean, that's that seems... That seems kind of problematic if you have like over a hundred year old people running around in school <sighs> we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following the interview played on tomorrow's show refusing to debate cool kids philosophers and right-wing pundits because seriously how has anyone time for that since 1996 this is hell if you want to prove that one can have a successful left-wing talk radio podcast streaming program going and not engage with online debate bro culture at all, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, go to our website thisishell.com and click on support, and see how you can further enable us to keep on doing what we're doing, bad habits, good habits, and everything in between. If you want to be an enabler, at least enable something good in the world, why don't you? And this concludes another day in limbo. We'll be back with more limbo, maybe even purgatory, possibly a place between, who knows, tomorrow. Tomorrow's show is hosted by fellow board operator Nan, who will play an old interview from the archive with David Graber. May he rest in power. Thursday will be hosted by fellow board operator Lindsay, who will present an interview uh, Chuck conducted with Adrian Marie Brown. 
And on Thursday, we will also have an all-new Moment of Truth with Chef Georgian. And declare the winner of this week's Question from Hell. Thanks to all my co-producers who keep the show going, even if the dear leader of our cause has been struck down by a curse from those who oppose us. Yeah, go ahead and prove that that's not the case. I'll wait. Thanks to all of our supporters, enabling us, indeed, to keep on spreading our message of uh, whatever the message is that we are spreading. You be the judge. And with that, I wish all of you, all people listening, be it live at thisishell.com or at a podcast, wherever, whenever, now in April of 2022, or at some undetermined point in the future, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, human, cat, dog, curiously smart parrot, space alien, post-nuclear war, mutated intelligent cockroach, a good day. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>